Hey everybody, George here from this episode's future. Like a fool, I forgot to plug the most important plug of all at the end of this episode, which is that there will be a live show May 4th at Philomoca here in Philadelphia. I'm really, really excited about this. I can't imagine it happening very frequently, if ever again. So, I I mean, I hope that people take advantage of this chance to see the show live. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody, seeing any fans of the show who live in the Philadelphia area. I would love to meet you all. So, yeah, check it out. And I hope to see you there. That's May 4th at Philomoca. The doors open at 6. Show starts at 6.30. We're going to be watching Tetsuo the Iron Man with Paul Ritchie who you might know from Continue or Goosebuds. He's also been on this show many times already. We're going to watch a screening of the movie first and then do a live episode about it right there. So you'll definitely want to take advantage of this and come on by to see it. All right, enjoy the ep. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh Uh-huh. What's what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, Talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a very funny comedian. She also wrote and directed the great short film John Tarzan. Please welcome Max Beasley. How you doing, Max? Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Hell yeah. Well, before we get into today's movie, which I'm very excited about, why don't you tell us a little bit about just your general history with horror? If it's something that you're very into, if it's more of a every now and then kind of thing, or if this movie just sticks out in particular among an entire genre. Sure, yeah. I do enjoy horror. I have written horror, but I think that my taste in horror is pretty specific. I tend to like atmospheric, psychological, sort of dread-based horror rather than, you know, jump scares or gore. Right. A lot of my favorite horror movies or movies that have horror elements that aren't necessarily horror movies. An example of that would be like Mulholland Drive is one of my favorites. Even something like True Detective Season 1 that has elements of sort of a cosmic horror to it, but is a lot of just dread and tension and atmosphere. Some of my other favorite horror movies would be Hereditary, which I know has some classic horror tropes in it, but a lot of it is just sort of atmosphere and tension. And I think something that Hereditary has that this movie we're going to talk about also has is you're always looking for something in the frame, something hidden in the frame Mm -hmm. that just adds to, and The Shining does this too. Things are just sort of off and you you wouldn't be surprised to look in the background and see something. Can I cuss on this? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's, I figure people are old enough to watch these movies. They're yeah. old enough to hear a swear. <laughs> I, I like a movie where you never know if there's something fucked up back hiding in the trees, right? Like I, I yeah. love Ari Aster movies. I love Midsommar and Hereditary. I love The Empty Man as a recent one that I, I really like a lot. And I think that that has a lot of atmosphere and a lot of psychological underpinnings. I like that sort of stuff. I'm not like a big torture porn person. I do like some slashers. I do like the Final Destination movies. (laughs) Classics. You know, I like stuff like that where it's just kind of fun and campy, but my taste is more sort of like Blair Witch Project, Empty Man, Hereditary, Willow Creek. I, I do, I would say my guilty pleasure when it comes to horror movies, sort of my favorite subgenre is the found footage subgenre 
I'm a big fan of found footage or mockumentary horror. For some reason, it just scares me more than typical horror movies does. Maybe because it feels more grounded. And it's pure atmosphere. I mean, really, yeah, like exactly. it's, it's totally empathetic in that it puts you in the shoes of the person who's holding the camera. That's very so true. It yeah, it doesn't feel like you're watching somebody. It feels like you are the person experiencing the horror. I think that that is, and you know, a recent I, I recently wrote a horror feature that was all about how the scariest thing is actually the feeling of fear itself. <laughs> And so I think a lot of the things that terrify me are just when people feel very afraid of something happening yeah, without necessarily even anything happening, just sort of that dread of, of something being there, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you assume, Oh, they know something I don't. Uh-huh. So yeah. <laughs> so the, if they're scared, I should be scared too. Totally. Yeah. Well, the movie we're talking about today is Lake Mungo the 2008 debut and thus far only film of writer-director Joel Anderson of Australia. It's found a bit of a cult reception over the years, especially because of the format. Do you remember how you first encountered this movie? I don't know how I first heard about it. I think probably what happened is I was looking at lists of like the best hidden gem found footage movies and and came across it. And, and the first time was a few years ago, alone, late at night, watching it on my laptop with headphones in, which I've heard other people maybe on Letterboxd or something say that's the ideal way to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. But it blew me away. It, it stuck with me. There are things in this movie that I don't think I'll ever forget about. It, Yeah, I feel like people who know about it really know about it. Mm-hmm. But it still kind of feels like a movie where I'm like, hey, have you heard of this movie? And it still kind of feels like one that I get to show people. I think, as you mentioned, it being the guy's only movie ever, <laughs> and also most of the actors in the movie haven't really done anything else that we would have seen. Right. You could realistically convince somebody that this is just a documentary movie. Sure. Very, very Blair Witch in that way as well. Yeah, which adds to it, I think. Absolutely. I think that you touched on a couple of really interesting things in there, which first of all, the fact that it really is the kind of movie where it's like, all right, I have established the foundational knowledge of horror. I'm ready for the next level. Mm. Let me look into what's still there to find for a, uh, for a horror head like me. Yeah. Look into these these underrated movies, these ones that people aren't always talking about. You find these lists, and every time Lake Mungo is, is, is in there, because totally. it is one that people are like, I want to share this movie and and it is still underheard, underrepresented in these conversations, nevertheless. No, you're totally right. It's interesting because I kind of think of it almost like a PBS documentary <laughs> or like a like a documentary you would see on like documentary now. It it just right. feels like a real low budget documentary. And I, I it's astounding to me as as a filmmaker myself to think of what can be done with such a limited budget and I love any movie that, and I think that's another reason why I love found footage is a lot of the time they're able to accomplish so much with so little. Definitely. This movie, either of us realistically could make this movie. I feel like most of it is Ken Burns effect. 
<laughs> right. Right. You just need a house and right. like a creepy outdoor location. Right. And you're good to go. <laughs> totally. So that's really inspiring to me. Obviously, neither of us could make this movie because it's so genius, which we'll get right. into. But <laughs> it, it's cool to see somebody be able to create something so unsettling that sticks with you with with so little. Right. Such limited resources. Absolutely. I also do really enjoy, you talked about how it's it's an effective movie to watch at your computer with your headphones on, and there is kind of an interesting form-breaking wave of movies that have been coming out. This is one, things like Unfriended and, mm. and Host, where it's like built around the computer screen, and even Skinamarink recently definitely feels like built to experience in your house mm-hmm. at a computer maybe it's a really interesting shift in the dynamic of filmmaking and it's one that is so aware of its own form that it kind of breaks from the pack in a way that is really unique and interesting that's true i, I haven't really thought about that but it's interesting it's almost like the boon of technology or screens in our lives has shifted a lot of these horror experiences from the films that you want to experience with a crowd in a theater. But then these films that I'm interested in, it almost like benefits them to watch them alone. Yeah. It's almost like cinema of loneliness. If I could coin a term, (laughs) these movies that I am talking about, I think they lose something if you watch them with another person, because I think a lot of what they do And a lot of why they stick out is because they're so effective at creating that fear inside of you Mm -hmm. that if you're watching it alone in a dark room, it's the kind of movie where you're like, if I go around into my kitchen right now, there's going to be somebody standing there, right? Right, right. Which is the scariest thing is, is if a movie can instill the fear into your life of the thing being real. Exactly. Just the idea of there being a presence when you know there shouldn't be. Just, but, like, if you're watching it with someone, even just knowing that, like, okay, there is supposed to be someone somewhere in the house, like, that immediately negates a lot of the tension of that. And so this isolation that's, that it plays upon, and so often these movies do have themes of isolation in them, I think it really is playing with that and sort of relying on you to build this and meet it halfway, basically, to meet it at the level that it's asking you to operate on totally yeah i mean it's something universally relatable in the terms of this movie and paranormal activity is another example of this and the feature i wrote has this too but it's like if there's a presence in your home which you know it's the classic haunted house trope but it's just done in such a grounded realistic way where you're like oh this could happen to me this isn't like this isn't like classic vincent price haunted house you know, elevated camp horror. This is like, what if there really is a a ghost, like, you know, in the chair in my room? (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Part of the initial draw for Joel Anderson was a bit of a fascination with Lake Mungo itself, a lake in southwest New South Wales that began to dry out between 22,000 and 18,000 years ago. Some ceremonially buried remains of an indigenous man and woman found there were estimated at approximately 40,000 years old, with the woman being the earliest known example of ritual cremation. Wow. Yeah, so truly, uh, history 
in spades at this location. And the idea of it shifting so much was so interesting to them. They said, the idea that ghosts inhabit a location as old and primal as Lake Mungo, especially when it looks so unusual, Mm. it's like an alien and altered space, unlike anywhere else on the planet. And we immediately imagined what kind of celebrations may have had there, Mm. what kinds of humans were there, what kind of drama unfolded 40,000 years ago, what kinds of betrayals, what kinds of love of conflict. Today, it's a dry lake and has been for many thousands of years, but it was once teeming with life. We wondered what inhabitants were left to haunt a location over such a long time frame. And yeah. It, it's just crazy. It's, a, it's such a wild looking location that it does create that atmosphere immediately as well. This leads directly into one of my other favorite subgenres of horror, which is Australian horror. Mm-hmm. There's something about Australia And I think a lot of it has to do with the mysticism and the scars of what happened to the Aboriginal people. But if you look at something like Picnic at Hanging Rock or The Last Wave, like early Peter Weir movies, Mm -hmm. or you look at, I just recently watched this movie called The Shout. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I'm not familiar with that one. So these movies all sort of deal with that, which is these ghosts are among us in this alien desert landscape and we're being haunted by them. There's something about the Australian landscape and the history there that is just so sort of off-putting. Lake Mungo Mm. itself is just, even the name, you're just like, feel kind of weird when you hear that name. It just sounds cursed, you know? It does. Although sometimes I also think Lake Mungo to the poles. (laughs) 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 sure yeah definitely so it goes either way depending on on my own particular mood that's good that's really good yeah no australian this movie i think couldn't have been set anywhere but australia Mm -hmm. there's a weird i have a quick weird story about watching this movie last night so that the movie takes place in this little town in australia called ararat I don't know if that's a fictional town or if it's real. I believe it's real. My girlfriend got us this sparkling water yesterday. It's a new brand that we've never had before. And I was watching the movie, and then I looked over. I took a sip from the water, and I looked at the brand, and it was called Ararat brand water. Ah! (laughs) What the heck? Yeah. Wow, you're being haunted by, by water over there. Very weird. Yeah. It was one of those things where you're just like, oh, geez. I also love that. I think that part of what makes this movie so interesting to me is that it is balancing this very interesting ancient terror with also something that is so immediate and now with the link between technology and the occult. And I think that it's particularly interesting because so many of these movies do use found footage to ex- ex- explore that link. And even the the few that do break away from that, like The Ring and Pulse, mm. still do so in a more traditional narrative. And so Lake Mungo kind of breaks free of both cliche dynamics with this faux documentary approach. I, I think that it just totally sitting in its own unique spot is so interesting. Yeah, it is. I, I, I think the aesthetics of it add a lot to it. I think the fact that it looks so low budget and the fact that the character, the son, I think his name's Matthew, 
is using sort of old photography implements to capture this footage and the, the video quality of the video cameras that they set up is so low res and yeah, it's all over the map and the cell phone footage is like Nokia, yeah. you know, like <laughs> shitty quality cell phone brick, footage. brick cell phones. <laughs> but when it zooms in, when it can burns effects into these images in the far background of the frame, the graininess and the sort of uncanniness of this distorted image is way scarier than if it was a crystal clear image. Mm-hmm. Sure. At one point it becomes a skull and you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> totally. And even, I don't want to jump the gun, but when it zooms in on the shot of the neighbor's face, mm. there's this distortion that's happening on his face where it looks like his expression is continually changing into all these different sort of haunted ghostly faces just from the right. distortion of the video quality you know it, it's pretty crazy it really there's just something about that and you know i'm not saying anything new the old vhs footage or distorted footage really adds to the texture of this but there's just something spookier about the low quality image yeah, than definitely if you shot it with you know a red or whatever nowadays absolutely John Brawley, the cinematographer, had a lot to do with this. I read a couple of really interesting conversations from him, and he said, Joel was really interested in the idea of apparent visual proof in images and how they can be used as evidence in the documentary form. I think he also liked the freedom of documentary storytelling structure. Unlike the conventional drama structure, where you tend to follow a single character's story arc, aka the hero's journey, with all the storytelling rules that an audience has come to expect... The documentary form allows you to near seamlessly jump between different character arcs within the same film. The tone can unexpectedly shift gears and surprising story diversions can play out without audience disbelief. You can even have blind alleys that actually lead to inconclusive outcomes and unresolved or unexplained story threads. It's all part of the documentary oeuvre. We're, all, we're so used to the maxim, a picture never lies, that when it's inconclusive, we're not sure what to make of it. We're able to subvert people's reading of images, something that initially appeared to be concrete would be undermined by an alternate shot or perhaps a revelation of new information by a character that would cause the image to be read in a new light. And I think that that is what is so fascinating about revisiting this movie in particular, is once the reveal has happened, for a lot of movies similar to this, it's very easy for it to drain the tension mm -hmm. but i think in this one because you have now you're armed with this knowledge it enables you to examine the background in more detail knowing what to look for almost mm -hmm. in a way that only bolsters the movie's effect you know as you start to notice things on your own it and, and ahead of the camera panning and doing the ken burns effect stuff mm -hmm. with it it just really makes you feel like you're earning the scares almost. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine who I had watched this movie described it as Where's Waldo for ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, but I agree. I mean, the reveal in the movie doesn't tell you everything's all right. It makes you when the things keep happening, you're like, "Oh, what it does is it, it ups the effectiveness of being like, oh, the real shit is real now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Definitely. If that if that reveal didn't happen, it would be like, 
one thing, but but that reveal, and then you're like, oh, but then things keep happening. You're like, oh, this is really real now. You know, <laughs> there's so many sort of reveals or switches or subversions in this movie. The whole thing about the manipulation that the filmmakers are doing, where they're telling you that this image is of one thing, and then later it turns out to be another thing, and it tricks your brain. You know, you see the thing that they're telling you you're seeing, and then later right. when it's revealed what it actually is, you're like, "Oh, that's what I was looking at." But you, of course, <laughs> never could have told you never could have told that. You know, watching it for the first time, you don't you don't see the image, and they're saying it's one character, and you're going, "No, that's a different character. That never happens." <laughs> right? It's just a shape, and and they fill in the rest of it for mm-hmm. you in a way mm-hmm. that is really effective. And your brain, fill, I mean, all the best horror your brain is what is producing all the scariest aspects of the film right uh nothing that could be shown is ever going to be as scary as whatever you're thinking about exactly the script itself was really loose with no official dialogue instead it was more of a detailed treatment that discussed the story beats and intent of each scene with the actors improvising their way through these beats in response to questions from joel who you can actually hear in the movie because they sort of cast themselves as the documentary film crew, only shooting things that would be possible for documentarians, no blocking or rehearsals, that sort of thing. And Brawley commented once again, saying, this is a a little bit of a long quote, so bear with me. (laughs) In Joel's mind, this was the key to creating authenticity, to try and shoot scenes in an unrehearsed and even unblocked way. It was the only way to bake in genuine mistakes that sometimes might happen with framing and focus, Mm. not to mention awkwardness with actors and staging for camera. All of these are unconscious signifiers and evidence of a real documentary, and it's hard to fake when you try to create these. In one scene that went for close to 20 minutes, we simply shot the counseling session as it happened with the actors meeting each other for the first time in character and doing a counseling session. Shooting with a single camera, there were no pickups, no extra coverage, and no take two. And we realized during post that we had a significant hair in the gate during all of the sequence. (laughs) (laughs) And we decided against painting it out, which was possible, because we thought it was further proof that we shot the scene continuously. Mm. The hair is there all the way through it. And yeah, it's the flaws that make Mm -hmm. that lend credence to that realism because you're like, well, surely if they were going to fake it, they would fake it correctly. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's so interesting because these are obviously not, you know, Hollywood actors, but it never feels like any of the people in the movie are acting to me Mm -hmm. at least. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I have a pretty good eye for that stuff. It never feels like any of them are acting. It never feels rehearsed. It never feels like they're reading lines. It never feels forced. It it mm. all feels so genuine. It's pretty unbelievable. How believable? <laughs> really, like, you, you can't... You could watch this movie and think it's a documentary for your whole life, honestly. Yeah. There's nothing in it that would kind of dissuade that. Without outside input, right. And it feels a lot more real than even any of the other sort of ghost documentaries that are out there, right. those all feel faker than this. Sure. It's pretty crazy. I think there is a really interesting dynamic that it has about sort of the medium being the message here with the increasingly complex relationship that photographs moving or not have with the truth. 
you know, this is more topical than ever with deep fakes and AI art copying people's style. Mm. And the mockumentary is meant to leverage the realism of the format while also commenting on people's and images ability to be manipulated. And so it splits the movie's function into both narrative and form. I think that they're each mm. equally fascinating. And it's it's an incredible balancing act that if either one of them falls, it becomes incredibly boring, I think. But they manage to ride that line all the way through. Yeah, I mean, it helps that the movie is so tight. I mean, it's like 87 minutes with credits. Mm. It, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's perfect. It, <laughs> It doesn't overstay its welcome. It doesn't really have anything that it doesn't need. It really is just like a concise, consistent statement of what it's doing, creates this mood. It's yeah. homogenous all the way through. I, I almost, <laughs> I I don't know if you've ever heard this, but this other podcast I like, they they clown on Alec Baldwin. Uh, at one point, he's talking about Woody Allen films and talking about the homogeneity oh, of tone, <laughs> which is ridiculous. It's so stupid. <laughs> and I almost just caught myself saying that. But it's true. Like, this movie stays what it is the whole time. And it's so unique to what it is. You don't really feel it being influenced by Blair Witch or past found footage. It really kind of feels like its own thing. Definitely does. Part of the narrative terror of it for me is its discussion and leveraging of the traditional conservative reactionism that underlies so much of horror. Mm. People talk pretty exclusively about slashers punishing behavior. Like if you smoke that weed or have sex, you'll get killed mm. by Jason Voorhees. Ah, spooky. Right. But less commonly discussed is that ghost stories often have the same spirit, so to speak. The gothic storytelling is often moralizing, not only in the rejection of the person who has changed in this way, but the very act of being trapped between this life and the next mm. is a pretty crazy punishment. Mm. And Anderson said that the strange kind of hope that they're stuck in this way, which comes from grief and a desire to have them back, was a big motivator for the story. Describing it through Matthew as better than nothing, mm. but then pivoting to the way that relationships and understanding can also change over time and how that might impact their understanding of their own haunting. Yeah. So th there's a, an interesting shift halfway through, like you said, not only in it being like, oh, these parts are faked by Matthew. Right. But also in realizing that there is an actual supernatural element and then right. also the family being part of the cruelty of the ending and, and their own reaction to things being part of it. I, you know, Brawley, he said, Lake Mungo is exploring how the dead can forever haunt the living. Our knowledge of Alice Palmer comes firstly from the family's own retold recollections, then her photographs and home movies. The aim was to paint a picture of someone from the visual evidence she left behind. Eventually, other kinds of amateur movies reveal a darker side to Alice, and we're forced to re-examine the earlier images and how we see Alice herself, which is exactly what the family goes through as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think this movie explores something which something like Hereditary also does, shining, I mean, uh, generational trauma, mm -hmm. and also the lead character or whatever version of protagonist that these movies have is a victim of themselves as much as the people around them are victims of this person, right? Right. Alice is being haunted by herself 
And I think that that aspect to this movie kind of puts it over the top, which is sort of the mind bending, time bending aspect to this, where it's like, oh, this character is being haunted by their own ghost before they die, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it reminds me of something like Donnie Darko or something. It's like, this is your fate facing you head on and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Him creating Frank the rabbit by shooting him in the eye. And then this is yeah. the version that appears to him in the past that led him yeah. to that. Yeah, absolutely. This kind of recursive surrealism that enhances the other supernatural stuff that's going on for sure. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it doesn't really, I, you know, I hate the, the thing of uh, rules of a world or whatever, but mm -hmm. this movie introduces these rules and you just kind of accept them. You know, you're just kind of like, oh yeah, like it's crazy that this is happening, but also it somehow makes sense. Definitely. It, it, it never pulls you out of it by introducing these sort of surreal or mind bending aspect. The way it leads you somehow, it ends up feeling natural to the progression of the movie, which is so impressive to me. I, I don't know how they did it. Yeah, a huge accomplishment in its own right. They shot using 40 different cameras to create the various aged photos and videos mm. with formats, including 35 millimeter, Super 16, HD, digital beta cam, Hi8, Super 8, VHS, and even mobile phones. This determination to get this accuracy across time led Joel to even consider casting a real family so that they could just plunder their actual old family photos. Oh, wow. <laughs> they yeah. did eventually decide against that. <laughs> So I'm not sure if you know, but are these people, are all the people in this movie actors or are some of them non-actors or first time actors? I believe that they were just like local actors who uh, he was like looking specifically for people who had that realism to them. Yeah. Because like you said, you know, it's not it's not that they're like bad, like, I, no. I, I, but but it's just it's such a specific performance that they're capturing here and that that sort of reactionism in a good way here the improv adaptability of it to have the no net of a script right. um, i think is is really kind of a really acting accomplishment it's very impressive that that these actors managed to create this question that we have of are these actors or real i people? mean they feel like real people i don't think that this movie would work if it had any faces in it that you'd seen mm. before. Right. I, you know, I Absolutely. think the immersion is kind of the whole thing with this movie. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, not to divert too hard, but I, for me, that was like my big issue with Nomadland mm. is I'm like already having difficulty following Frances McDormand <laughs> there. And then she's like hanging out in the, in the like camp. And you're like, is that David Strathern across yeah, the way? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't help that that movie was directed by the daughter of a of a millionaire steel magnet. <laughs> you know, it's just in. Surely she's very but, familiar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But. So Brawley also discussed uh, this aging the footage fairly in depth. He said even during the post production phase, Joel felt he needed to further degrade some of the home movie footage even further. So I started by dubbing it to VHS repeatedly six times. Mm. Then on the seventh time, we started up Complete Post's one-inch tape machine and dubbed it to that. 
And while it was dubbing, I started yanking on the take up and feed reels of the open reel Mm. recorder machine, causing further glitches. After another couple of dubs through VHS, including one pass where I removed the tape from the cassette, crinkled it in my hand, and carefully wound it back on, it was more than 10 generations old and finally to the point where it looked right. Oh my god. It it does look right. Like, it is incredibly well done. It it does. And it it doesn't feel like anything that could have been added digitally, even today. You know, it, 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 it does feel like found footage (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy i i love that look i you know another movie that sort of did a similar thing is julian donkey boy the harmony Mm. korean movie i I think they may have like shot it on film then reverted it to vhs or something and then blown it up to 35 so it just looks Mm -hmm. crazy yeah i i love that and you know a lot of my short films have that sort of like really low-fi, low-quality, grainy, noisy look to them. I Mm. I love texture in movies, and this movie is so textured. You know, just the visual aspect of it is so textured. Absolutely. It's so rich. Yeah, I don't know. I, I love it. It's really great. Shooting began in Ararat before they actually had all their financing in place so that they could create the illusion that they'd spent a considerable amount of time with the Palmer family by getting footage of the township as it changed across all four seasons instead of the 25 days of principal photography in November. They drove three hours every month or so for about six months, which gave them enough material to shoot a mood reel, which actually was necessary to lock down some of the final private financing. So it kind of was like if they hadn't just gone for it, it might not have happened at all. Interesting. Do you know what the budget of this film was? I could not find that information. Yeah. I looked pretty hard for it, but you have to imagine it was not very much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you told me the budget was under a million dollars, I would believe you. Definitely. 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 It was released to mostly positive reception from its limited festival releases. It did build this cult following that we discussed until today when it is declared the best horror movie ever made, uh, <laughs> solved, done, and dusted. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly up there for me. It's funny, sometimes when you look for this movie, there's this, I don't know if it's on physical release or what, but there's this one poster of it where on the sidebar, it's just like scary horror classics or whatever. <laughs> you know, it looks like a movie you would find at like Walmart, like a cheapy B-horror right. movie. And then you watch it, and it's just like, most of it is just like this quiet, like PBS-style documentary of Talking Heads and Ken Burns Effect. It's like (laughs) everything about it is so anti what we think of as like a cheapy horror movie, right? Right. There's no schlock to this at all. Yeah, and even when it gets to the big jump scare, there's one jump scare in this movie. When it gets to the big jump scare, it still feels a part of everything that came before it, even though it's loud and horror and in your face, nothing about it is like, Oh, this is manufactured. Definitely. So we, we've talked around it. Let's get into the actual movie. Let's talk about this thing. Yeah. So it starts off with this opening montage of early 20th century ghost photos, which does emphasize the convergence of the living and dead, as well as the idea of trickery through photography and the Mm. nebulous relationship of images to reality. These were popular discussion fodder by both believers and critics at the time. And one of the first examples of photographs 
having their reputation of absolute truth tellers mm. being punctured by the fact that this was trickery, but also creating an idea that they were more effective as truth tellers because they could see beyond the empirical world. Yeah. So it creates this really strange association with cameras as being like more than the human eye of being able to right. pass the threshold despite people being like, oh, this is faked. People said, well, you know, cameras still have this mystical quality to right. them. It's a really right. interesting uh, start. Yeah, which is not new. I mean, there's a lot of horror media about that. Right. But this doesn't really feel a part of that because it's so private to this family. You know, it's so personal to them that the specters that they're seeing are their daughter. Mm -hmm. That it feels like a discovery in this movie, even though it's sort of an old trope. I wanted to mention also with the opening credits the the font of the titles is very like iMovie like <laughs> like Final Cut Pro 2006 you know yep. and it just comes up like Mungo production <laughs> there's no studio uh, logos before it it just goes right in to this yeah. photo in like 480p with the little <laughs> white font that's like Mungo Productions and you're like oh yeah like some guy just made this documentary you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah it, it really it really adds to it. It doesn't even feel like a movie. It, it feels like <laughs> some documentary you would find on like the fourth page of Discovery Plus or something. Yeah. <laughs> and over these photos, a young woman narrates that she feels something bad is about to happen to her or has already happened and just hasn't reached her yet. Another voice says you have to believe you're to blame. Otherwise, there's nothing to hold on to. Then smash cut. From these antique images to a color photograph of your classic nuclear family, mom, dad, son, dog. <laughs> and this does a great job, <laughs> does a great job of creating this gothic atmosphere, setting us up to believe that this is a spirit photo too, although we don't see the ghost yet. Yeah. And it begins in earnest. December 2005, a tragic accident began a series of extraordinary events that thrust a grieving family in the small Victorian town of Ararat into the media spotlight. Mm -hmm. This film is a record of those events. Mm -hmm. And the Palmer family, who was the subject of the photo, describes the disappearance of Alice, the girl in question that we've been talking about. She seems to have come out of nowhere. They were swimming at the dam. One minute she's there, the next minute she's gone. Yep. And unfortunately, the the divers find a body on Christmas Eve 2005. How's that for a present? <laughs> yeah. And may I say, sort of the first real horrific image of the movie, in my opinion, is the photo of her drowned body. Fucking it, nasty. <laughs> it's, it's bad news. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really comes is. back. But uh, the image of her pale face with the gaping mouth on the mm. on the gurney or whatever you're just like oh yeah this movie is going to disturb me definitely definitely and russell and june go down to make everything official identify this body but june doesn't go in for the identification which russell thinks was a mistake because she doesn't get that closure mm. this is a big part of the movie this idea of closure of not getting it in particular and uh how that can make you hold on to things make you not uh, be stuck in the moment this stagnation this purgatory that the ghosts themselves find them in uh so too does the family without being able to move on yeah and this is a thematic thing that connects with me because you know i know of both sides where 
my my father's dad sort of disappeared without a trace in the 70s in a private plane uh, while he was hunting. Wow. And, and they never found the plane and they never found his body. And so for years, my dad thought there was a potentiality that his father was still alive out there somewhere, right? So that's one side of it. You never get that closure. The other side of it is I've been in situations with people where I see them on their deathbed or in an open casket or, you know, whatever it is. And that last image of them does stick with you as sort of a big part of how you see that person, even if you knew them for a long time before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even just this little part of this movie has that thematic relevance that is grounded in reality, which is like, do I want to remember this person as this horrifying, you know, drowned corpse? Or or do I want to remember them as my daughter, but then always sort of have that question mark in the back of my head, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a line that June delivers with some bitter acceptance. She says, death takes everything eventually. It's the meanest, dumbest machine there is, and it just keeps coming, and it doesn't care. There's nothing else to know about it, really. Mm. And boy, it's just very, it's an, an impactful line. It's its a very well-done moment early on to really uh, get you on their side. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing of a family grieving a loss and, and grief sort of being a motif, you know, this is something that is in the works of Ari Aster as well, sort of tying that, you know, it's sort of like emotional horror, which I really, I love emotional horror, where a lot of the horror is tied to the person's inner feelings of grief or depression or anxiety or loneliness. And that is sort of the catalyst for this movie, which is this family is sort of all operating out of that mindset, right? And that's yeah, sort of what, what triggers the events to start happening is their own action. Yeah. It also, there's a moment here that I think is also thematically relevant where the news attempts to memorialize her. And mm. they say Alice was a, a happy, fun-loving girl with a zest for life. And there's just something so simplistic about that, about the way that people are flattened out almost mm. in death mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and they're smoothed. And, and there are, this is explored from multiple sources, but just to have even the news this early on be like, this is how she's remembered, like, that is impactful early on and and coming back to it being like, well, she had a lot going on that didn't seem that happy. And, yeah. and you see in photos that she wasn't smiling all the time. Right. So this moment where they're saying like, oh, she had this is who she was. You're like, is it it like you question it immediately? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've seen it firsthand with people that I know, friends of mine who have passed they either become sort of, they sort of become an icon, they sort of become all the best versions of themselves or celebrated more in death than they were in life, yeah. or they become the worst part of themselves and villainized, and that's what everybody remembers, right? Yeah. You're kind of your best or worst version in death, and there's no gray area anymore in that. Right, all the complexity of life gets sucked right out. Yeah, it's interesting. 
10 days later, weird stuff begins to happen. Russell describes strange noises on the roof and in Alice's room, and the door to her room is heard repeatedly slamming. They call exterminators even to be like, is this this the noise? Yeah, it's termites (laughs) slamming the door to your dead daughter's room. Termite parents just don't understand. Slam. (laughs) Yeah, this is sort of another hint where you're like, oh, I'm in for something here. This is starting to enter the fucked up horror movie territory. Uh, Also, Alice's friend Georgie says the house had bad vibes, which there's no coming back from that. No. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, this is another thing where that's sort of a realistic thing to say. I mean, I've entered spaces before that just have a bad energy to them. And, you Mm. know, my own sort of belief of when we die, we just become energy and are just part of the energy of the world, whether it's a good energy or a bad energy. Like if someone's murdered in a room, I fully believe that there could be like a bad vibe in that room, you know? So, you know, there's just something about that where you're like, Oh yeah. Like I could see that happening to me. I could see myself saying that, which is another thing where it's just like nothing so far in this movie that's happened is out of the realm of possibility. Right, and it's ju- it's like authentic enough where you're like, if so- if she had walked in and been like, it feels like there's a spirit haunting us or something, <laughs> right. you'd be like, shut up. Yeah, but yeah. the fact that she's just like, it's kind of bad vibes in here. You're like, yeah, yeah there's, of course there's bad vibes. <laughs> yeah, and also it could just be bad vibes of the family is just a bad sure. vibe right now, you know, <laughs> yeah. which makes total sense. Definitely. June begins to have terrible nightmares about Alice coming home from the dam still soaking and standing at the foot of their bed, staring to the point where she just walks around for hours at night to avoid sleep, breaking into other people's houses so that she could, quote, be in someone else's life for a while, which everybody just kind of shrugs that off, which is very funny to me. (laughs) It's, again, I mean, something that could totally happen and it's just sort of a bleak detail about a grieving family where you're just like oh my god this is dark you know yeah as someone who struggles with sleep myself and you know even has irrational fears of of someone in the house or has struggled with nightmares you know like i get it i get not wanting to fall asleep and the thing she says of i didn't want to open my eyes you know it kind of mirrors that line in blair witch where heather is like i'm scared to close my eyes i'm scared to open them right 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 it's there's no there's no escape in, in any fashion and yeah i mean russell you see him trying the opposite way he's throwing himself into his work doesn't seem to be working yeah uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah and his co-workers like yeah i thought it was kind of weird <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well not my place i guess <laughs> yeah 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 totally but then one night late in february he hears a noise from Allie's room and he says I don't know why I found myself sitting down in the chair in front of the dresser. And before I could kind of work out what I was doing there, Allie walks in and walks to the desk, mm. shuffles some pencils and looks like she's checking for a text message on her phone. I was completely freaked out, but she was completely oblivious to my presence. Mm. And then I don't know what happened. I must have moved the bed or squeaked my shoe or something. And she went completely rigid. And I knew then that she knew I was there and she turned around, looked right at me in the eye. It felt like forever came at me and said, get out, get out. And this is what convinces him, finally. His family finds him sobbing. He's convinced of his daughter's presence and, more importantly, her antagonism, that she is angry at them. Right. It's 
very scary <laughs> <laughs> to have a room in your house where you're just like, my daughter's in there. My daughter's not in there. Mm-hmm. It's just this like foreboding and this dread and this sort of overlying cloud hanging over you, which like right. has real world meaning, but also in the form of a ghost story, you know, the metaphor of that is really powerful. Yeah. And a thing in this movie, a lot of the scares see it's people describing the scary things that are happening to them just in like talking head. And so what you're doing is you're picturing in your mind, the scary thing happening. And again, it's scarier. You're picturing the scariest version of that. So it's way more effective than if they would have like done some sort of reenactment or something. Right. Definitely. Oh man. I can't imagining this movie with like dramatic reenactments of stuff is like, (laughs) Oh my God, that would be much worse. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It does also bring up some interesting thoughts as a viewer, because the way that these typically go, a ghost haunts their loved ones until their murder mystery is solved and justice Mm -hmm. is dispensed. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, there doesn't really seem to be a murder or even suspicious circumstances. As far as they know, she just drowned. Yeah. And I don't know for you, if you had this, but for me, like, and I love murder mysteries and I love true crime and all that, but I never felt like any of the family was complicit in her death. I never got that sense. You know, it's it's interesting because I feel like they are in a way that isn't like physical. Sure. Like I think I think that they are complicit in the way that they don't know the real her. Yeah. And so it it is again it's I think to me it's one of these things where it's like it's benefited by revisiting where it's like once you see this and you can look at it and be like, well, why is this ghost here? Yeah. Where is the complicity? Yeah. It, it There are like little seeds of it maybe that aren't as foregrounded as they might be in another movie. And I think that that is yeah. a really interesting way to handle a ghost being, uh, being, gra- being stuck somewhere. Oh, definitely. I, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I think a lot of that is like gray areas, which a lot of this stuff is in reality, but I guess I just meant that I never thought the reveal was going to be like one of them. Killed oh, they her. killed her. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't remember specifically, but I don't think that that was the case for me either. Where it's like they all felt like they were too much missing her. Like it, it all felt because of that authenticity, that believability right. that they're bringing. Right. You're like, oh, I believe that they are in pain here. Yeah, and definitely once the guilt. Um, and the sort of responsibility or complicity that they had in it starts to be revealed. It makes sense, but mm-hmm. it also makes sense as something that maybe they didn't realize was happening until they realized, you know, Georgie also mentions that Alice and Matt were extremely close and that she, among others are concerned about his health, mental and physical after he mm. starts spontaneously bruising. Oh, um, yeah. But he, <laughs> which that is scary. They and don't really the, talk about it that much, but the doctor talking head is like, yeah, these bruises don't make any sense <laughs> on his body. Yeah. All right. On to the next thing. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does start to take a great interest in photography though. This is his escape. One thing that I really like is that even before we're aware of its importance, they show us some of his early photos And you can see the experimentation with form, with double exposure, with what it's focusing on. You can see the seeds of what's to come without even knowing that it's important. 
Definitely. Uh, some of the early photos have this sort of ghostly spectral quality to them. And I don't know if that's due to the atmosphere of the movie so far, but you can definitely see those early photos and be like, yeah, these are weird photos. They're capturing <laughs> something that yeah. maybe isn't there, you know? And so he had set up a project where he was taking a photo of the backyard every three months for four years. And on April 28th, 2006, the photo showed Alice standing against the fence. Mm -hmm. And here's where something very interesting happens to me, is that you can also see something in the garden there, but it uses this Ken Burns effect to zoom in on Alice mm -hmm. as Matt talks about it. Mm -hmm. It's really fun by the cinematographer, as discussed. He says that they're pulling that away from us with the shiny ball of, here's the ghost not there. Right. And so when he says, this is the ghost, and you go, oh, well, that other thing must not must not matter. We're imagining it. So we've talked about this Ken Burns effect a little bit uh, here and there. For people who aren't familiar, it's this highlighting by zooming in and around on the photos. Right. Um, something I was reading about it was discussing that because this is a digital gaze produced through nonlinear editing rather than an external camera, it kind of helps to build this sense of visual entrapment, like you're in the confines of the photo despite that movement. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of being parallel with this ghostliness and everything. It's true. Yeah, it's like, you know, there are parts. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, if, if you've ever seen the documentary and there's a photo and then it's slowly pushing in on something in the photo digitally, that's. Ken Burns effect, it's in iMovie and Final Cut, you know. Right. <laughs> so these photos, it sets up this thing in this movie where you're seeing a photo and you're always waiting for that zoom to start. And the thing in the backyard, all these things are in the distance. You maybe don't pick up on them right at first. And then as it slowly zooms in, you start to pick up on what it's zooming in on. And that dread is building and you're just like, oh, God, there's something there. And it's zooming in on it. And I can't stop it from zooming in on it. <laughs> and so every time you see a photo or every time it starts zooming, you just go, oh, fuck, it's going to show me another thing in this photo. <laughs> It's so I hate effective. when there's things in the photo. It's so scary. It's so effective. <laughs> it's such a brilliant device that I've only ever seen done in this movie. I'm a big, longtime fan of Ken Burns Effect. I've been using it since I started making stuff in middle school. To see it used in this way where you're just like, oh, there's something way back there in this photo that's like four pixels. <laughs> in some situations that you would never see unless we zoomed in on it. We're going to yeah. zoom in on it and show it to you and you're going to come face to face with it. It's so messed up. It's so scary. <laughs> it's so scary. Effective. It's really cool. It's it is. It's very unique. It's it's a really awesome part of this movie. Matt says that this ghost image improved the mood in the house because it gave them something to focus on. And this is bolstered by the emergence of another photo, this time at the dam, that appears to show Alice standing in the background. And so June and Matt begin to think Alice is still alive. Russell disagrees, having seen the body, although he begins to doubt himself after June is convinced that he made a mistake. This is when they do a shot of that waterlogged corpse. I do not mind saying it is quite nasty. Yeah. And it doesn't look like anyone in particular either. It's right when they say like, oh, I could have made a mistake. You're like, yeah, this stuff barely sure. resembles a person anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. They decide to exhume the body for DNA testing, which is disruptive to say the least. But the DNA does confirm it's her. 
The footage shows several photos of Alice as a youngster looking extremely goofy until there is one photo of her looking very stern and a little older. And it does this really great job of being like, oh, what happened in between? Like, what brought that change on her? And now that they've confirmed Alice's death, they have to figure out what's going on on these photos. Yeah. So so Matt sets up video cameras in the house. And that first night, right away, they see a figure walk by. And the movie zooms in, but also way to the right, there seems to be someone chilling. So <laughs> it's funny to, uh, again, be like, oh, is that someone? Nope, we're zooming in. All right. Pull and, them all the way. You know, for me, like, or for a lot of people, they may not even see the second presence, which sets up something later in the movie that's very effective. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's, really great. it's this footage of the walking. It resembles the Sasquatch video, the famous Sasquatch <laughs> video which to me is very scary. And as someone who's very scared of Sasquatches, that is a, that is a video that even though I know it's fake, haunts me. And later in, in Bobcat Goldthwait's Willow Creek is very, a very effective found footage Sasquatch movie. But yeah, yeah the, the image of someone walking across a hall like that there's a great part in Exorcist 3 that has that as well. Classic. The classic. With That has like a crash zoom and a sound attached to it. This is <laughs> The thing with this movie is a lot of these things are either dead quiet or just like a very low hum. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very ambient. There's no yeah. like when the person walks across the hall in the footage, it doesn't go like, you know. Right. They're, they're not telling us it's scary. They're right. leaving it up to us to be like, oh. That was a ghost that I just saw. That's scary. <laughs> it's kind of more effective in that way. It's not signaling yeah. the scares. And that adds to you finding the scares, right? Right, right. Absolutely. June decides to seek the help of a psychic named Ray. He says he's happy to give people the consolation that death is not the end, which, of course, makes him not a very trustworthy source, which I think is pretty interesting. And also the fact that he's using a stage name, right? Right, right. And during his intro, Ray says, where I come from... When someone dies, they block out all the mirrors to stop the dead from finding their way back, which will come back. So hold on to that audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mirrors are another sort of portal, like a lens that maybe can capture something that the human eye can't. Right. And so tied to what photography is, you know, a series of mirrors letting in light and everything. And during their first session... June goes into this trance, and she gives him the guided tour of their house. I really like the way the images of the house interior are set up to go with these, like, narration moments. Mm-hmm. It's, I find it very scary. Mm-hmm. It's like Lost Highway, the the slow creeping down the hallway. Yes, exactly. You know, not, or The Shining, like, even if nothing's there, just the fact that you're moving closer to potentially something is where the fear comes from in those instances. Right, and and for it to be out of your hands now at this point, where you're like, oh, I don't even get the choice to decide if I want to go closer to this thing. It, the slow movement and feeling of loss of control is, yeah. that's what's so scary about Yeah, it definitely. Me. You're on the ride. Right, yeah. And so she leads Ray into Alice's room, where she sees Alice sitting in the wicker chair at the end of the bed, looking sad. There's a really nice counter image with the empty chair there on the actual screen. I think it's really powerful, really good stuff. Way better than if she was actually sitting in the chair. Yeah, definitely. So they hold a seance a few days later, recorded as well. I find it very funny that this is framed to give you just enough of the doorway for Alice to be visible, but also... 
it's very effective. Like, even being like, oh, it's funny that this is there framed this way. You're like, it's going to fucking work. I know I'm waiting for this ghost now. Totally. And it, and that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And I have mentioned it, but the distance of the spooky figure in all of these videos and photos is what is so scary about it. It's the same thing that you've seen in other horror movies where you're like, oh, wait, there's something in the background there is way scarier than if just, you know, she popped up into the front of the camera, you know, and it goes, you know, it's like, like, oh, this thing is like hiding back there. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Spooky for sure. Russell claims that this new footage was very different, significantly more detailed, less ambiguous, impossible to dismiss as shadow play and digital noise. There was something inexplicable in our house that was beyond death. And I thought it was so funny, clearly very purposely funny, that this is followed up by Ray being like, yeah, I was concerned. (laughs) Like (laughs) like the intensity of what Russell is saying. And then Ray, Ray is very funny to me. There's another little digression that happens where everyone's like, we thought Ray was bilking these poor saps. And he's like, hey, what am I, Rasputin over here? (laughs) Yeah, totally. He he feels like a Nathan for you character or you know or he he feels like a just an oddball character that you would find in one of these documentaries where you're like i don't know what this guy's intentions are obviously he has some sort of hole in him that needs to be filled by helping his family his actual interiority is a a a question mark yeah entirely still so totally yeah really great stuff they see her again in several reflections though some are more visible than others And suddenly there's more footage of April 3rd, the day Bob Smeet purportedly caught Alice on camera at the dam. Yeah. yeah. And huh, what's this? Computer enhance. (laughs) That's not Alice at all. It's Matthew. Yeah. Now, what were your thoughts the first time seeing this when you found out that Matthew was there that day? I thought that he was trying to like drum up interest in it and like and Mm. because he thought that she was alive potentially that he had been like because it's now a while since then since this image was caught and and since he wasn't he didn't have that closure that he was like if i make it look like she might be alive then whatever dragging investigation might pick up again we might be able to increase our chances of finding her if it looks like she's still in the area yeah and i think that it is it's very sad i mean it's a very sad thing that's happening for him yeah definitely this is sort of the first of the reveals of this movie where it's like the person that you thought was in this image that we told you was in this image is not the person and it sort of sets everything up for the viewer to be like okay what is the truth and what i'm seeing right and that sort of sets you up for the rest of the movie yeah and he admits that not only was that him but that he was also behind the sightings of alice compositing her into the photos dressing up in her sweater and walking across the hall what you see is basically alice on television in the mirrors Mm -hmm. he said that he wanted to help his mom who's keen on exhuming the body but that won't have happened without evidence so bingo bango bongo right and again that's just when that happens you're just like oh this is just a really sad portrait of a grieving family right like it's that thing of like documentaries have sometimes where the reveal is just that like it's just a really sad story (laughs) right yeah they're like oh this was this was never even happening (laughs) yeah catfish comes to mind right right of the film catfish you're just like oh this is just like really bleak it's not scary it's just bleak right 
It is also worth noting that when we revisit the footage in the hall, the reason it looks more like Matthew this time is because they literally shot it twice, once with each actor. Oh. Brawley said, you think, how could I have not seen it was Matthew all along? You start to question the way you've been looking at the images yourself, and that is a very deliberate orchestration. Totally. We're meant to question how subjective interpretation, influenced by new knowledge, can shape reality. Very integral to the immediate ending of this movie. Totally. Uh, I think that they do a great job with that. It's so crazy how much thought goes into something like this. It's hard to know unless you've made something, but even just to make something like this, which feels very lo-fi and low budget and is sort of a hidden gem that a lot of people don't know about, is just like an immense amount of thought and preparation and and the thing with feeding it through the VHS 10 times to get it to look a certain way. It's just like everything in this movie turns out to be deliberate on the filmmaker's yeah. part. It's really pretty mind-blowing. There's a great moment here where the digital grain on Alice's face makes her look like a skull. And Matthew defends his efforts to resurrect his sister, in quotes, resurrect. Right. Saying the wearing her jacket and going to places she'd go, manifesting her in photos. It wasn't about trying to trick people. It's that something was better than nothing. And June doesn't really believe him, and everyone can see that she's devastated by this because she wasn't ready to give up Allie, but this was the end of hope as far as they were concerned. Yeah. These photos that were meant to provide hope instead cement that she is in fact dead and that it was Matthew faking. So, tragic. I think it's interesting, too, how they're not really, they don't seem to be mad at Matthew. They seem to sort of understand what he was doing Mm-hmm. And sort of accept it like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's something that a grieving brother would do. You know, they're not like, mm-hmm. why would you do this? You know, you tricked us. They're kind of just like, yeah, that's just we're, what we're all fucked up right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The relationship between Alice and June is explored a bit more here, including June's guilt. People say that they didn't really get along too much because they were too similar, which is very relatable. Yeah, they had their own private life that they choose to share or not share, they said, that they're kind of difficult to know. And there's a a fucked up moment, or a fucked up moment, if you will, (laughs) where where June's mother almost agrees that June is to blame, saying that she didn't give herself fully to June, and that might have passed on, and if June had been more loving, then maybe Alice would still be alive. And you're like, First of all, obviously playing into this whole generational trauma being passed on thing, but to lash out in this way, I mean, understandably, she's hurting as well. She lost her granddaughter. But to say, if my daughter had loved her a little more, maybe she'd be alive is just so hurtful to everybody and just really impactful. A lot of times in these situations, there's finger pointing, there's blame being assigned. Right. That part really hit me of just like a mother or a grandmother admitting that like, yeah, I never, I never really loved this person. Like I should have, I wasn't able to give myself to this person. And I hope that they know that I love them because I'm not sure if they did. You're just like, Oh God, that is tragic. Gut punch. Gut punch. Totally. This movie hits you all over. It hits you. It hits (laughs) you in the gut. It hits you in the heart. It hits you in the brain. Yeah. Amygdala, you know, it it really, yeah kicks your ass yeah totally (laughs) there's a really interesting moment tucked into this scene where we see the footage of the scene that russell described earlier as a memory 
with Alice noticing him and getting tense than saying, get out, get out. We see it as home video from Matthew. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it reinforces this question of images relationship to reality. Because mm-hmm. you can say he created a false memory. But in another sense, he has transposed these images from the footage onto his own memories. Mm-hmm. So while he's not necessarily lying, he's also less reliable than previously thought. And it prompts reflection on how much of this ghost is similarly a blend of reality and fiction. How much of it is willing to see the signs of a ghost in order to have this tenuous relationship to someone still exist. For sure. It also can be read as setting up the sort of time jumping, reality bending aspect of things where Mm. maybe these things are not linear. Maybe it's a circle oh, he saw something now that happened in the past that he didn't know about, maybe. Mm, That's true. Maybe it was like an echo of that situation happening there. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Matthew and Ray go off on a psychic road trip, which is fun. Yeah, and (laughs) at this point, at least for me, I was like, okay, it's fully in the realm of possibility in this movie that Ray is like a pedo, right? For sure, for sure. (laughs) Um, And while he's away... Matthew comes to terms with his grief. He says he was almost one of Ray's clients as well. Things take a turn, though, when they come back to find more footage seeming to show Alice standing there over June while she sleeps. And without Matthew in the house, it couldn't have been the same fakery. Yeah. Which sends June pouring over the footage again. And she sees the second figure in the hallway footage. And similar to me, assumes it's Alice at first. You go, holy shit, it's the real ghost. But then, wait a second, computer enhance again. Yeah, the truth oh my is even gosh. scarier. Our neighbor, Brett Tui. Yeah. Unbelievable. This this scare really got me. Because you don't know anything about why anybody else would be in the house at that moment. Right. You're just like, oh, this isn't a ghost in the house. There was a person in Ugh. my house I had no idea was there. Is so terrifying and this is the part i was talking about earlier where as it's enhancing as it's zooming on his face his face is like flickering with the grain and the noise of the quality of the image and it looks like he's making all these strange ghostly terrifying faces he doesn't even really resemble a person he resembles sort of a spirit as well yeah for sure And they think he's looking for something, and so they go to look for it, and they find it immediately. A hidden safe containing a diary and a sex tape between Tui, his wife, and Alice, who babysat for them. Yeah. Who I believe is a minor, correct? Yeah, she's 16, right, yeah. So it's definitely statutory rape. The thing that complicates it is that she seems to be comfortable, and so the police... Aren't going to pursue the Tuies who moved away six months after her death. The six, the six was consensual, right? right? That's what he says. (laughs) And it seems consensual in the tape. It does. It does. It's that thing of like, if you're under eighteen, you how much consenting can you actually do? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to also say really quick: the safe that they find the stuff in is a creepy giant hole in the wall in Alice's room. That very, is, very creepy. I don't know if it's in Paranormal Activity 2 or 3. There's a similar sort of thing in the person's mm. room that's like a little a little crawl space almost in the bedroom mm. where you're just like, I don't want to go in there. There's nothing good in that crawl space. <laughs> yeah, totally. It, I just wanted to mention that the, the little safe 
area creeped me out. I, I wouldn't, scary. I wouldn't want a little hole in my bedroom <laughs> like that in the wall. For sure. The two parents try to reckon with this. June is sad and sort of positioned as a counter to Russell, where she's wondering if Alice was in love with Brett, while he's unwilling to accept that 16-year-olds might be in- interested in sexual experimentation. Right. He's unwilling to see her as not daddy's little girl, almost. Right. And he suggests that Alice's death was a suicide. And right. he says, as far as I'm concerned, the Tuies were complicit in Alice's death. Right. If it hadn't been for them, she would have reached out to us. She wouldn't have felt guilty. She wouldn't have felt the burden of that secret. And she wouldn't have been isolated. Yeah. And what makes that so fascinating to me is because the way that I read this movie, we don't really have any evidence that she felt guilt or shame about this mm-hmm. or that she wanted them to find out because – I mean, they claim that Alice hid the tape so poorly because she wanted them to understand her better. But mm-hmm. I don't know why she would necessarily want them to know about her sex life. It, to me, feels like a projection of their own judgment about her actions. Because if you asked me to describe someone who was off having threesomes, I'd probably say a fun-loving girl with a zest for life. <laughs> so- <laughs> Yeah, it, it is very interesting, and it comes back later. It's sort of that thing, this introduction of this idea that, oh, this girl contained multitudes. And there's a line later in the movie where one of the friends is talking about how there were all these different versions of this person. That's right. That some were public, some were private, you know? And, and it's true. I mean, like you were saying before, like people being flattened in death when, you know, in reality, even someone like, especially someone like a 16-year-old girl is sort of unknowable to a certain extent, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's Kim. She says, secrets change the way you see somebody. Each of us knew one Alice. I knew one. Her mom knew another. And there was one, again, that none of us knew. Mm. This is that private life that June had that her mother had talked about being unwilling to share with people. Mm -hmm. They examined the journal that they found as well. And June finds Ray's business card taped all the way back in 2005. And they're like, what the fuck, Ray? Yeah, yeah, that was weird. It was. And I mean, Ray says he was just honoring her request for confidentiality. But it's very understandable the resentment that they feel about this this deceit. Because, I mean, a lie by omission, at least. Because his his earnestness with which he throws himself into things like the seance and, and all this... Yeah. Make it feel very scummy. Yeah. You don't really understand the intentions of why Alice went to see Ray five months before she died. All you know is she went to see Ray. She had a session. He knew of her. And then five months later when she died, he threw himself into this family dynamic after her death without letting them know that he had any idea of who she was or anything about her. And so the audience is also questioning, like, why did Alice go see Ray? What was she doing? You know, right. it, it just throws more mystery into everything. And we get to listen to her taped session, which is very scary. And she says something very similar to June's nightmares, which creates the possibility that they aren't just grief. She says, I had a dream last night. I was cold and wet and I felt heavy like I'd been drugged. And when I woke up, the sensations didn't go. I was feeling sick and confused, and I was starting to get scared. I needed to see Mum, to talk to her. I stumbled to her room, and I stood there at her bed, and as I stood there watching her, I was overcome by this intense sadness, 
And then the sadness turned to fear. I just stood there, paralyzed with fear, and I realized there was nothing that they could do for me anymore. I've never felt so utterly alone. Everything felt wrong. My body, the way things looked. Then I realized there was something wrong with me. I started to cry standing there. And what's so interesting and so powerful to me about this description is that unlike June's description, in Alice's version, it's not what's seen, but what's felt Mm. that makes it terrifying. Mm. She doesn't know that she's dead or, or that she's drowned. It's this mystery. She can't see the wet, bloated, drowned person, right. but is conscious of the psychological and physical sensations of it. Right. And so while she doesn't see herself, she becomes aware that she seems to be in her own body, this confusion, this fear, this sadness, the movement, and she becomes conscious that there is something wrong yeah. of a breakdown, a separation between her psyche and the body that she's in. So to boil it down, Alice feels like she's a stranger in her body while June sees the stranger in her body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. That has a metaphorical connotation to disassociation due to trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Not feeling like you're in your own body. Right. Or or feeling like the body that you're in is not the body that you see in the mirror, right? Right image issues. These are all things that girls of this age, women experience. It's a very interesting parallel there between this ghost metaphor and what happens when you've experienced some form of trauma, what happens in your body. The other interesting thing here is this is another situation where Alice is saying this stuff five months before she dies, right? Right, right. So she is sort of seeing the future without knowing it. And this sort of is one of the beginning things where you're like, oh, there's like a, there's a time aspect here at play where things are happening in the past and the future and the present sort of simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Uh, This person is being haunted by herself kind of things. It's very weird. Yeah, and I think that the way that it's playing with all these time elements, to me, that plays also into the generational aspect of this whole story, where it's like, oh, it's happening in the past, the present, the future. Oh, it's happening in grandma, in mom, in Alice. And it does create this link between them again, this potential psychic capability, which doesn't seem to be a good thing, seems to be a trauma between them that is also passed down. Not only this reserved nature, but this psychic ability is its own generational trauma. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we know horror explores these things in metaphor, but this movie does it so subtly. These are like things that you don't even pick up on until you're talking about them. There's Mm -hmm. such a depth to this movie and its meaning And I think that that's one of the reasons why it sticks with people is because there is a lot to, I mean, you even DM me, like, there is a lot to unpack here. And there really is, you know. (laughs) The next four days in August of 2005 are labeled Lake Mungo, wherein she had attended a school camping trip at the Australian Dry Lake, memorable to her parents because Alice returned without several beloved possessions, including her brand new phone. These damn kids always losing their phones. (laughs) Her phone, her necklace, and her bracelet, right? Yeah, all of her treasures. By the way, when they turn the page in the schedule, 
in the calendar and it just says Lake Mungo in big ah. red font for four <laughs> days, you're just like, oh, God. Oh, it, God. It's terrifying. The name Lake Mungo is scary. It's. It also just really feels like it. You feel the culmination of the story coming. Yeah. It does uh, such a great job of signaling the climax of this movie. Uh-huh. It's just really well done. Yeah. This is the part where I start going. Last night when I'm rewatching, I start going, "Okay, the the really fucked up scary part is right around the corner, <laughs> and I'm just dreading it." Yeah. Time to sturdy myself here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And I, I did have to pause it before we were going to get to it. But before this thing happens, I had to pause it and I had to steal myself <laughs> and watching it for the first time and not knowing oh, man. what's coming. There's an entire Reddit thread that just says that one scene in like <laughs> Mungo. And it's just everybody talking about these are like horror heads. And yeah. they're just talking about the sequence really fucked me up. <laughs> it's really, really... I mean, we talked about the gut punches before. This rips you right open. Yeah. Joel Anderson, again, the director, he explained, we wanted locations that had both a sense of beauty and a sense of menace. Dying is a form of being lost, and these extraordinary places that feel haunted and so ancient perfectly reflect this. I think that they absolutely do. It's a very eerie environment. I keep looking behind me. I'm at the point now where I'm getting scared. <laughs> not see what's behind me i'm starting to look behind me it's right Watch behind out for me, any drowned it? peoples yeah god yeah yeah um, and mungo yeah the environment i mean and even the first shot you see on the friend's cell phone footage of the the party that they're having at lake mungo there's just like this weird sort of structure like tp like a weird it just feels very uncanny right off the bat you're just like yeah. this feels wrong for me to be watching this footage this doesn't feel real it feels like they're in some sort of weird dimension out in the middle of nowhere and you're having a strain to see it because of the blurriness of the cell phone footage it's it just really creates this really interesting draw yeah this is not iphone footage this is (laughs) this is 240p that's right that's right if that (laughs) if that yeah The footage, though, does show Alice looking sad. She buries something. She walks around weird. And the Palmers trace the spot at Lake Mungo, and they go to the burial site, and they unearth Alice's most precious things. Like we said, her favorite necklace, the bracelet, and her phone, which enables us to finally, over an hour in, get the first glimpse of footage from her perspective. This is such an interesting way to flip the script a little bit, and... So much of this movie is people talking about Alice yeah. that to finally get a glimpse into her virtual yeah. eye, her new yeah. flesh eye, so yeah, to speak, yeah. Yeah. is just very powerful and does create that dread without and even knowing what's coming. You're really put into her shoes. Mm-hmm. It, it's first person perspective, the cell phone footage, you know, it does feel like you're the person walking down this road. Yeah. Here's here's the thing. There are a few things you should never do in a horror movie, right? <laughs> and a lot of them are in this movie. <laughs> if you find a buried cell phone, don't look at the footage on it. Right. Don't walk around Lake Mungo at night filming on a bad right. cell phone. That's the number uh, one rule as far as I'm concerned. The list goes on and on. But <laughs> here we are. We're trapped. We're on the ride. And we're watching Alice's cell phone footage of her walking down this dirt road in the dark and then it's 
interspersed with recordings as well of her consultation with Ray for dream analysis. She repeats the bit at the beginning about how she feels like something bad has happened and is coming for her as yes, terrifyingly a figure comes for her and it's her own dang waterlogged corpse self. Yeah. Truly awful, horrific, terrifying. Yeah. It's a nightmare. It's truly a nightmare. So the footage starts, you're just walking slowly down the dirt path. You see this figure clad in white in the distance you're getting closer to it. It's just standing there. Yeah. Right. Then the figure starts coming toward you and you realize that it's the drowned Alice. And then it cuts to Alice drowned Alice charging at the camera, making this awful sound. And it is one of the most effective scares of any movie. It reminds me of the, the guy behind the diner, in Mulholland Drive. Classic. The Winky Scare. <laughs> which, for me, is one of the scariest things of all time. It's a, This scare is what this whole movie's been building to, but it is just one of the most effective scares, I think, ever, in my opinion. It's very effective. And it's so funny to me that, despite being so out of nowhere, it does kind of feel earned to me. Like, it, mm-hmm. they've, they've drawn you in with this slow pace this whole time. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, you spend that goodwill on one good jump scare like that, and mm-hmm. I'm like, you earned it. You you did it. This is fine. I'm on board for this jump scare. It's the climax, uh, it and yeah. it explains everything. And now you are really faced with the reality of, oh, this girl was literally haunted by mm-hmm. herself. She may not have known it was herself. Some people think she knew she was going to die. Some people in the movie just think that she saw something out there, but you as the viewer realize Alice was haunted by her own ghost, which, mm. you know, I'm sure other horror things have explored before, but it feels very unique and fresh in this movie to, to be faced with your own spirit in that way. And that's sort of the point of no return for this character. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Ray had said, where I come from, whenever someone then dies, they block out all the mirrors to keep them from finding their way back. And here, the cell phone has become that mirror. It brings the spirit through that tortures Alice, while also intersecting with technology's ability to disrupt linear sequentiality and visit the past, mm-hmm. which of course simply cements her prophecy. So she's seen her future in the dream. Then through this video, it implies that much like a dream seems real, the truth about technology's relationship to reality is much more complex than just looking at a screen and saying, oh, there it is. Right. It's really it's really interesting. It's the, it's the past, present, and future all at once, which is right. how grief manifests as well, right? The family has kind of a bizarre reaction, in my opinion, which is instead of going, Wow, that's a truly fucked up confirmation of my daughter's <laughs> premonition. <laughs> they return and say, I believe she saw a ghost. Oh, well, at least the bad feeling in our house is gone. Right. I think that part of what makes this movie so interesting to me is that it's possible to read this as less literally, I think, as that they see on this footage something that confirms Alice is not who they thought she was. And that they have given up on their grief that was holding them back, not because of any healthy processing, 
but because they are now ashamed of Alice Mm -hmm. that the girl that they were mourning didn't even exist almost. Mm -hmm. Russell even says we collectively decided to move forward and we'll be moving literally as well. And hey, we even welcomed Ray back into our lives. Yeah. They truly regress. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like that version of their daughter is gone figuratively and also literally that version of their daughter is gone from their house and from their lives, right? Right, right. June does one final session with Ray, another hypnotized house exploration, which is interspersed with Allie's session reflecting the opposite perspective. Yeah. She found herself sitting in a chair in her bedroom as her mother enters, but, quote, I don't think she knows I'm there. And she watches her leave again. Probably doesn't connect to the refusal to see the real herd that I was just discussing. <laughs> yeah. This part has, I think, the most impactful line in the movie. And I'm probably going to misquote it. But so the mom is going into the room and Allie's not there. And then from Allie's perspective, she's like, my mom is in the room. She doesn't know I'm here. And then the mom says something like, she's not here or she's gone forget exactly what she says but it's just like that whole part is like one of the craziest parts of the movie to me especially because earlier we had heard june's description of this scene and she saw her in the chair right and so now when she goes down the hall into alice's room enters comes out of the trance very abruptly and very stone-faced says yeah she wasn't there it almost feels like she's you know going down further down this path of what I am choosing to interpret this metaphor, she's like refusing to see her now as her daughter feared because the secret life, this interiority has changed her opinion of Alice before she, when June went in earlier, she said, I saw Alice and she looked sad. Yeah. And the reason that she looked sad is because her relationship with her family was shallow enough that something not really that crazy, you know, it's crazy for a 16 year old, but ultimately in the grand scheme of things uh forgivable at the very least was enough for them to cast her aside she felt like a stranger to them and upon getting to know her better her family decides we'd rather not actually yeah it's it's interesting it's like the reason why she stopped haunting them is because they found out about the thing with the neighbor and they found out about the lake mungo footage But the reason why she's not there in their minds is because they know all this stuff. Our daughter is dead to us. Yeah. And and she's like, I want you guys to know all of this stuff so that you know who I am. It's like a, it's an interesting thing where their motives are like in total conflict with each other, but the result is the same, right? Right. And at the end of the movie, we return to the photo of the family before they leave And there's now a clearly visible Alice just chilling inside. She doesn't seem interested in contacting her family. She's just watching them leave. Like she realized in her dream, there was nothing they could do for her anymore. And uh, we get the credits, which also include more sightings that couldn't have been met. Yeah, that ending shot of the slow zoom in to the first family photo and she's in the window. You're just like, oh, God. And then over the credits you get all these other sightings where Alice isn't where we thought she was in all the times we first saw these things. She's in a completely different part of the photo of the video. And you're just like, Oh my God, this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And so through my lens between Matt's reality manipulation and June seeming to have some level of psychic ability, they did bring Alice back from the dead. 
to live in their house, which seemed like what they wanted. But instead of feeling closer to her, now knowing the hell that she went through with the premonitions in the months leading to her death, the Palmers have turned their back on her. Uh They're freed from the guilt and moving away, while Alice is stuck there, isolated and damned because of her family's unwillingness to accept her. Yeah. It's a really tragic ending for Alice in particular. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking movie. It's so, and the fact that we're talking about this movie like this, even though we know that it was scripted and made by filmmakers, but it really just hits you the way a documentary would. You know, you feel like the, these are real people. You care about them. You care about Alice, and knowing that she's like cursed to be the ghost forever with no connection to her family or the outside world. You're just like, oh my god, this. <laughs> It's, it's it's so great. It's really great. And the credits roll, and there's a very scary stinger where the screen flashes a few times, and she's standing there very still at Lake Mungo in the shadows, and it's a very scary dismount. I did not watch until that point. Wow, you gotta go yeah, back. I gotta check it. that out. It's oh, very geez. scary. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea that that even existed. Oh, yeah. Gotta watch through the credits. Okay. Yeah, I gotta stay for the after credits scene, I guess. <laughs> That's right. And now, Max, we have reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. (laughs) And I'm going to let you start. Okay. Well, I think the fact that it was made with such limited resources in such a lo-fi, low-budget way about such a small story, yet the themes are so universal and it's so effective and its atmosphere and dread and its scare is so effective. It, it just really shows how much can be done with so little. And it's sort of like the most minimalist horror movie there is in a lot of ways. You know, it's like a primal minimalist horror. It's tight. It's 87 minutes. Ooh, love it. You, you watch <laughs> it once. You're never going to forget it. It's fun to watch. It's not boring. Yeah, I mean, a lot of horror movies try to be maximalist and and scary by showing you everything and having this big bloated budget and it's this epic horror movie, you know, like something like It comes to mind, right? And I just feel like this is like the antithesis of that, where it's just like, this is all in your head and what's scary is what you're thinking. I think that this movie is a really good example of that, so. yeah. Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is a totally unique, genre-shaking, form-bending movie. It is mm-hmm. totally its own thing, and that might be enough mm-hmm. for a lot of movies to be mm-hmm. satisfied with just doing that. Mm-hmm. But to be so thematically rich yeah, and have so much to dig into, done so subtly, like you described. Yeah, like, yeah. For this movie to have the the soil to even grow these thematic yeah. trees is is incredible, and what it has to say is interesting as well. Right, right. it leans into the idea that holding onto a concept of someone instead of who they really are can be punishing for both of you. Yeah, the initial punishment here is from supernatural forces, but ultimately. The final moments of this movie are an act of cruelty from the living as well. Yeah. It implies that our protagonist family are the cause of the haunting because of their refusal to let go. 
But then when they get some information that changes their perspective, they literally get confirmation of the ghost's presence. They move away. They trap the ghost in the most extreme form of isolation possible, which they've deemed an appropriate fate for someone more transgressive than their initial understanding of them. Yeah. And for it to just so deftly have this entire tragedy happening underneath it on top of just being like a scary mockumentary right is fucking incredible (laughs) like it really is astounding it's so impressive yeah it it's so hard to make something good especially with limited resources i'm speaking from experience that the fact that this movie even exists is kind of a miracle absolutely and the fact that we know about it and are talking about it 10 years later i mean that's all you need to know absolutely Great, great stuff. And now, Max, plug time. Tell the folks listening at home anything you want to point them towards, social media, any projects that you want to plug. Sure. time. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Beasley. Two Ys on Instagram. I think three Ys on Twitter. (laughs) I have a movie that I made last year, a short film starring Demorge Brown called John Tarzan that I think the link is in my Twitter bio for. It's about a alcoholic private eye in the early 70s who is supposed to be investigating this case of this missing girl, but all you can focus on is that his girlfriend left him that morning. Talk about Um, texture as well. (laughs) That was a big focus on that, is I just wanted it to be really textural. Mission accomplished. Thanks, man. Yeah, so yeah, I would say that those are my plugs, and I have my show dates and stuff on my Instagram, so you can check check them out out. Yeah, definitely check it out. As far as my plugs, you can check out more episodes of the best little horror house in Philly, including a very fun one about Mulholland Drive. If people are interested in that, my friend Jess came on and we had a really great conversation about that as well. So I'll point you towards that. And if you're really enjoying the show, there's a Patreon with all kinds of fun bonus episodes. Sometimes we do spotlights of movies that don't necessarily fit directly into best horror movie ever made. But also sometimes we do other things like uh, we talk about video games or we talk about books or we talk about our top 10 Simpsons Treehouse of Horror segments from the first nice. 10 seasons. <laughs> like Nice. <laughs> truly anything and everything yeah. uh, happens over there. So you can check out all kinds of fun stuff for very cheap, considering the amount of work that goes into it. (laughs) Yeah, subscribe to this man's Patreon, please. And uh, yeah, Twitter, uh, Little Horror PHL, that username applies pretty much everywhere. Letterboxd, Instagram, all the places. Um, That's it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.